0: For our scripture reading Luke 1 26 through 38 that uh, it was mentioned in the announcements but I want to make sure you've heard it that we are having our virtual Christmas Eve watch party that will take place on Thursday night that's Christmas Eve at 6 30 p.m. both YouTube and Facebook it's hosted on both those platforms we encourage you to get on and comment and be a community together as we watch those together so we want you to comment we want you to engage with one another as you watch. And they'll be available to watch after that if you want to see it again or see parts of it again. Our kids are telling the Christmas story in a fun and inventive way. Our thanks to Beth Staswick for setting that up. I, I think you will enjoy it, and I think you'll be able to engage in worship of our great God through song and story as we gather together virtually on Thursday night at 6 30. Let's read our text today, uh, where Mary discovers some new news that's going to change her life in Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. In this crazy year of 2020... Uh, There was an article that I uh, saw this week talking about the new Hershey's Kiss commercial. If you remember the one that's been shown for 30 years where they ring bells, the little Hershey's Kisses are like bells in a Christmas tree shape. It's a very cute commercial, 30 years of that, and they changed it this year. You know, about three seconds in, a little girl grabs one of the kisses and then it shows dad and daughter baking together. Now, I don't do Twitter, but apparently Twitter lost it on this one because they messed up a favored commercial, they said. And I just have to say, I think we need to aim higher on what we care about. Um, Because when you think about it, Christmas and what Christmas is uh, gets summed up in things that are much less than the season or sometimes unrelated to the season. Christmas is not about Santa. Sorry to burst your bubble. It's just not, although every Christmas movie seems to tell you it is. Christmas isn't actually about love, family, happiness, or good cheer, although all those can be byproducts and part of Christmas. And hang with me for a moment. Christmas actually isn't just about the personal salvation we get through Jesus Christ. It's not less than that. That's important. That's significant. That matters. So don't hear me saying it doesn't matter. It's more than that, though. Right? When you look at verses 32 and 33, if we look at those again, it says the angel talks to Mary and says, He will be great. He'll be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Greater things are happening through Jesus. That is to say, through Jesus, God comes in a human body to fulfill his covenant, to essentially eradicate sin and the curse of sin and the injustice and evil that go along with sin and the evil one himself, he comes to rule his creation as king forevermore. So that's what we enter into is that bigger story than not simply my personal salvation, which matters, is important, is pivotal and key, but God's kingdom is what we're entering into with that story and that decision. And so Mary at this point has what we've talked about for the last couple weeks, a kairos moment, a timely moment where she has to decide on something God is calling her to do. Do I do what I'm called to do by God through this angel, or do I go a different way? Right, An initial kairos moment for all of us should be the call to Jesus to repent and believe. That is that personal salvation. We need to enter into that and enter into God's kingdom that way. Once we've entered into that, if we've made that decision, we still have those kairos moments where God breaks in and says, you know what, you still need to repent and believe and make adjustments to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ more. The Holy Spirit is working and calling you to do that. We have those kairos, timely, the right time moments where we're called to more of that salvation than we were living before and Mary has a kairos moment here the angel comes to her and she has to change her expectations based on God's presented reality to Mary And it's no different with us that God does things, maybe not exactly that moment, obviously, but God does the same with us, with Kairos moments. And the question is, when God calls like that, what's your answer to a God who will reach into human history, into your life, and ask you to step into a new reality? That's what Mary's grappling with. That's what we have to grapple with as we understand that God enters into human history and calls us to be remade into something completely new. You're not just okay the way you are. God's got something more in store. Now, what does the angel say? If we go back to verse 28, the angel starts with, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you couple of things we can notice there one why is Mary highly favored never tells us any more than God we know why Israel was highly favored throughout the Old Testament because God chose them not because he says they were special he said, because I chose you that's why God uses people who are faithful and unfaithful and calls them to faithfulness we don't know why he chose Mary but he chose Mary he says you're highly favored God wants you And it says, the Lord is with you. That should bring to us uh, images of what's about to come up, because we know the story of Emmanuel, God with us, that kind of idea. The Lord is with you. But the angel starts with the familiar phrase that often happens when God speaks to people through Scripture, through the prophets, through angels, himself speaking at times. It's almost always preceded with, don't be afraid. Mary, big things are about to happen, but don't be afraid afraid of what's about to happen. Why would Mary be afraid? I think sometimes I like to point this out that we need to put on our historian hat when we get into things like this in scripture uh, because sometimes we have this assumption that people who lived before us, especially a long time before us, were not as smart as we are. We're stupider. And that they had this expectation that they'd run into sort of supernatural things at every turn. And, of course, they were misusing it and all these kind of things that we do in Western society and misunderstanding the world around you. Let's just point out, people in the past were pretty smart. They could figure out a lot of things. In some cases, they could figure out a lot of things we, for some reason, can't figure out today. And the other thing about this is, Mary was a pretty average person who probably never expected to be visited by an angel in her entire life. Most people don't expect that. Most people didn't in Mary's day. So, the idea that an angel would come and visit Mary, lowly Mary, is a big deal. It wasn't a normal occurrence, it wasn't an expected occurrence for someone like Mary. And she's told about what we know as the virgin birth. That's kind of the, the big doctrinal understanding of what we understand here. It's unique to Christianity. You can Google it and look at all the different things people have said, but don't Google it right now. Google it after the service. And you can see what people have said. They say it's stolen from Greek myths and all these other kind of things. It's not. They're not the same. It's not at all. It's unique to Christianity, but we're being told about something that actually happened here. And we have to understand, why would Mary be afraid? Well, uh, at, at a basic level, Mary is engaged to be married, but she's not yet Married. Now, engagement in this Jewish context in the first century worked like this: you got engaged; it was a legal contract, and uh, you have bride and groom. After that legal contract was made, which largely was based on inheritance rights and that sort of thing, that's what the contract revolves around, and, and children and, and those things. Then, bride would go back and live with her family for about a year while the preparations were made. Uh, for the groom to receive the bride in his home. They were legally married. In order to break that off, you need to legally divorce. But they're legally married without consummating the marriage. That's important. Celibacy before marriage was of the utmost importance for a number of reasons. So now Mary is engaged to be married to Joseph, and she's told, you're going to be bearing a child. You'll be pregnant while you're engaged, and betrothed, but not yet living and consummating the marriage. The penalty for such a, a crime or, or th- that sort of thing happening, according to Deuteronomy 22, would have been death. Now, let's make a teaching moment here, if we could. Because a lot's made in our society sometimes of what we read in the Old Testament of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. It's what's called the lex talionis, often. Um, that, the idea of the same equal punishment, if you will. What the Old Testament uh, law teaches in those things is that's the maximum penalty, but you don't have to dispense the maximum penalty or consequence. Because all around the ancient world, it's it's very moderate compared to the rest of the ancient world, whereas in other parts of the ancient world, if you stole an apple, you could have your hand chopped off. Well, the punishment doesn't fit the crime at all. The Old Testament doesn't say, if an eye is taken, then you have to take an eye. It says, never go beyond this, but you could go less. Chances are, in Mary's day, nobody was getting killed for adultery, which is what this would have been, or been considered. Most likely, they were being shamed, because that was the way society worked. They were an honor-shame culture. Don't be afraid, Mary. Shame. Right? She's afraid of that. It's a big deal. The other thing about that is, we should point out, it's hard to hide a pregnancy. Now, I'll point out, guys tend to be much more easily fooled on this. Women are less so. They figure it out. It's hard to hide a pregnancy. And I also want to point out, sometimes we're fooled in our day and age, right? The sexual revolution has fooled us in our day and age because sex, marriage, and babies actually do go together. Not only is it tried and tested and true, but it works that way. And if we think that people in the past were sometimes fooled by things, I think we're fooled by that today. They understood how things worked, and Mary was afraid. But the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid. God is speaking to you, Mary, and your life is about to change. So Mary, what are you going to do with this information? That's the question she's left with. We want to understand that shame, that don't be afraid. I think, I think we get that, but I, I want to kind of point it out a little bit more or, or dig into it a little bit more because I think sometimes we can be like, oh, that seems like a small thing. I read an article in the Voice of the Martyrs uh, just a matter of months ago that was talking about uh, a woman in a predominantly Muslim area or an exclusively Muslim area of the world who came to know Jesus Christ, and she essentially is the only Christian in her area. There may be one more roughly within her area, but there's no church. Everybody else around her is Muslim. Uh, Everybody uh, else—and that means that in her life, getting a job is now harder. Her family has shamed her and pushed her out, and she likely, if she stays in that culture, which she has nowhere to move— Uh, the chances of getting married and having a family which were an aspiration for her and for everybody in her culture and society are pretty much ruled out under the current circumstances. That social shame hits her hard and affects her. That's what Mary's afraid of. And we can understand that, I think, better than we want to say in our part of the world if you've ever been labeled as the class clown or something like that when you were growing up in school, if you've ever been given a bad nickname, if you've ever been made fun of or bullied at any point in time, you understand Mary's fear on this level. You get it. And it does beg a question for us who follow Jesus Christ, which is this, how often do you refuse a challenge or nudge from the Lord because you're afraid of shame or embarrassment from others? I mean, that's what Mary's up against. She's a faithful person to God. We know that much about her. And now she gets direction from the Lord that something's going to change. It's going to be hard to explain, but God has called you to it. Are you in Mary? What's God's promise here? If we keep going on in the text, let's go back to verses 31 and continue uh, on. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The name Jesus is thrown out there now. That means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. Joshua is kind of an Old Testament parallel name or virtually the same name that we run into. What is this salvation going to look like? Well, he's going to be great. He's going to be son of the Most High. That, if you're familiar with the the Gospels, Mark 10 uh, might come to mind where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, hey, only God's good. Same kind of language being used here. This Jesus that you're going to give birth to is going to be great, just like God. He's going to be son of the Most High. And that specific term there, I won't go into how we get to that term, but the term applied, if you find the Hebrew equivalent that gets translated down the line, again, I won't go into the whole thing, El Yon, which gets used in the Old Testament, El El Yon, as a title for God, God Most High. You can see it all throughout the Old Testament. It would have been a clear signal to Mary of something uh, God like in this uh, person, this child to be born, something like Psalm 78, uh, verse 35 has that very title. It says, They remembered that God was their rock that God Most High, El Yon, uh, was their Redeemer. It's not the only place, it's just one little example of it. Mary would have heard that, she would have known, okay, this is something bigger than just a, a, a child in, in the way that I should have been expecting it. And we can see that this is not going to be an ordinary human or an ordinary whatever's going on. Mary may not know all of that because their expectations of a Messiah for Mary's day was not that it was going to be God in a human body, but this language is tipping us off that this is God in the human body. And we should point out two important theological points here. One is, this is telling us accounts that actually happened. Jesus actually existed, and we believe based on this and other things that Jesus eventually said that Jesus was God in the human body. And the language points us in that direction very decisively here in this text. He's going to sit on the throne of King David, and he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants. So this child is going to come, and he's going to do remarkable things. God in the human body, we know that. Mary might not have realized that, but she could tell that he's going to be the fulfillment of the covenant that God created with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he's going to be the fulfillment of his promise to King David, that his family line, out of his family line, the Messiah would come and reign forever. And we can see here that he's going to rule creation as king. It's a remarkable promise that God is laying out for us. Just to get the David piece uh, before we move on, just so we've seen that in 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 13, here the prophet Nathan gives this sort of promise that people would have been expecting to David. It says, when your days are over, David... And you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Solomon, but he's going beyond that. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from, from before you your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever and that reinforces the promise that God made to David throughout the old testament that there would be this messiah that would come in his line his kingdom would be reign forever mary wouldn't have missed most of those cues in what the angel said to her mary don't be afraid Right, she's got a tough road ahead, but there's a lot of promise that's involved in this. She gets to carry that promise to term. A good little summary of what's happening here. Uh, John Paul Isaac, a uh, professor out of Namibia, says this. Whereas childlessness means shame for this day and age, and pregnancy removes this disgrace, the opposite is true for an unmarried woman. What is more disgraceful than a premature pregnancy in one who ought to preserve her virginity until marriage? Yet this disgrace is what the angel promises to Mary because she has found favor with God. For in Mary's case, she has not sacrificed her virginity. Rather, the power of God was at work in her. You know, Mary's got a lot to weigh out in this. Don't be afraid, Mary. Why not? You're about to experience something remarkable from God that is going to be hard for people to believe. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary, because you're going to bear a child that will shake up and change the very foundations of the world. Don't be afraid. Oh, and also, here's a promise. God will be with you the whole time. Right? It happens twice in the text. Uh, It happens in verse 28, and it happens in verse 37. After she's told even more information, verse 37, for no word from the Lord or no word from God will ever fail. God is with you. God's going to see this through. God's going to fulfill this. Mary, in you and in Elizabeth and all that's about to happen. And God does that kind of thing, doesn't he? Makes promises that he's going to fulfill. That's what's happening here. And Mary has to decide, right? Right? There's a a cultural and social inconvenience that goes with this. And we face this kind of thing, right? Kids go to school and have to figure out how they're going to deal with uh, intricate social situations and how they're going to understand what lines they can and can't cross. We go to work and we have to make work decisions on whether or not to laugh at jokes or to engage in certain behavior. Whether or not we, we live two lives, one work life where we act one way and one life where we act different at home. Mary, don't be afraid. She knows what's coming. But what's your answer to living a God-honoring, Jesus-centered life when your social credentials might take a hit? Who will you be when kairos moments like this strike? That's what Mary's faced with. And we're faced with the same things on a regular basis. And Mary's answer is great, simple, and remarkable. In verse 38... Now, I'll just show you a little something before we see. Well, you see the verse there. But this is, I'm just noting how I underline this in my text. You can't see it very well, but I did red stuff here. You don't have to do this yourself, but I did red stuff for the stuff where God promises and God's work. I did blue for the response. I always do this when I underline in my preaching Bible. Blue for the response, because God commands and invites, and I want to see that. And I see that here, and Mary says it very simply when asked, when presented with all this information, what is Mary's response? I am the Lord's servant. If you've ever heard, I'm the Lord's handmaid, maybe your translation has that. That's where we get that language. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. The Kairos answer to her Kairos moment is, I'll do it, God. I'm your servant. I'm in. Mary had a Kairos moment. She was asked to change her expectations based on God's reality. God entered into human history in a remarkable and decisive way and asks her to step into a new reality. What's your response to a God who does that? To a God who calls us in remarkable moments like that to be who we were intended to be, to be part of his kingdom and his kingdom's story, which is far beyond the simple decisions we make. He calls us to something greater when he steps into history, calls us to a new reality. How will you respond to God's promise of salvation and his kingdom? Let's pray together. Lord, may your word be fulfilled in our lives and may we enter your kingdom with gladness. We know that there are many people who reject your kingdom. We know that we live in a world that doesn't walk at a kingdom pace. We know that we have to make decisions all the time if we follow your Son, Jesus Christ, on whether we're in or out. Lord, when those kairos moments happen, when those decisive moments hit us where we have to repent and believe, help us repent and believe and not deflect and not walk a different direction, and not have a different response than Mary who said, I am your servant. May it be as you will, Lord. May that be our response. If you're calling us today to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, that initial repent and believe, Lord, may we say yes right now. Yes, Lord. And if you're calling us to life change because we feel like we've faded away, we're in the doldrums, we're stuck, we're not sure we're hearing your voice, we're walking in faithfulness, Lord, give us a kairos moment to repent and believe and walk faithfully with you. We are your servants, Lord. May it be as you will. Amen.